You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 10, Episode 9, Gene Roddenberry Promotion Letter, August 5th, 1945. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, welcome back, Star Trek fans, and wow, all you Star Trek historians. Uh, you tech heads are going to love this today. Anybody that's curious about just the evolution of Star Trek, all of its many influences, we've got some great documents this week. We have one primo document. You want to check it out as usual at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Hey, we're the only podcast with homework. <laughs> I say that because, uh, well, this is one you really want to see. Uh, and no, we're not in the next gen era. We're not in the original series era at least with this document's concerned. So take a look. Now here's an audio sample, and then I'll be right back with this week's very special guest. To Captain Eugene Wesley Roddenberry, 0662606. The president on this date promoted you to the grade of First Lieutenant, Air Corps Reserve, in the Army of the United States, under the provisions of Public Law 9777th Congress and Section 37 National Defense Act as amended. Hey, Trekophiles. Yes, spelled with an F. We're glad you're here. Um, this is a, a uh, a corner of, uh, well, the Star Trek world that we don't dive into enough because it's a corner of Gene Roddenberry's personal life. And I say that because if Gene Roddenberry is the creator of Star Trek, with many more in his circle and, and to come, uh, it's instrumental to go back and look at the influences on Gene. And nothing could be uh, more fundamental to Gene's psyche and, and state of mind and life that he had lived in the mid-60s when Star Trek was created as much of his generation was, was the impact of his service years. And for that generation, uh, World War II was a big unifying bond. And uh, I feel like I have a big unifying bond <laughs> with this week's guest, because, you know, I don't care where you are in Star Trek, a bunch of us have a certain degree of old ship nerdness in us. Uh, we love that aspect of the show, uh, no matter where we are on the spectrum, uh, as far as our Star Trek love. And that's why I am so thrilled to have Thomas Marone is our guest this week and for the first time on the Trek Files and you all know him from years of designing ships and climbing the ladder and having an influence on so many folks' uh, looks and now having ships canonized on Star Trek screens. So Thomas, it's great to have you here with us uh, from STO and all the places. Uh, thanks for jumping in here. Oh man, it's my it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and and coming on. And I'm I'm really excited to to take a look at this with you and talk about um you know one of the sort of major events of world history um uh in the last century and how it informed the one of the major events of future history. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and and we've been talking a lot with all the new Star Treks out now. Uh, we talk about recently. We've really been in in a curve here about looking at how TOS was adapted into TNG, how TNG was the first new series, and what that meant, and then every you know succeeding series after that, and then we get generations, and we get into the Discovery, Picard, Strange New World, you know, and, and the animated shows. Now, 
And one of the threads, of course, one of the tenets of Star Trek is Starfleet. And as as you know, <laughs> all the specialty fandom around the ships and the bearing and all that. And it's interesting that no matter what of the future shows we have, I don't think there'll either there'll ever be an impact on the creative team, Gene and Matt Jeffries, chiefly, the you know, lead designer and art director for the original series and designer of the classic Enterprise. Um, and, and a lot of the cast and a lot of the folks working on the show, Bob Justman on down, a lot of, almost all the men in the cast, to their military service and in particular the fact that they were all the World War II generation. It's like that's yeah, just that's... something that can't be replicated today. I, I mean, I don't want it to be, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah. Yeah, we have. I mean, I think I think our generation. Uh, well, I, I'm I'm a um, elder millennial. I guess is the correct term for me. I was born in '83, um, and I, you know, a lot of the, uh, people in my generation are maybe a little older are running Star Trek now. Um, and you know, we grew up in the Cold War, and so I think you, you know, I think you are seeing stories that are a little more gray with the Section 31 stuff coming out with Discovery, and and you know, um, I think I think all of that imprints on your your psyche in certain ways um and the, the the issues at the time you know with climate change obviously discovery had a really big arc about um unintended consequences um with uh, mm -hmm. the the latest season right and i think um every generation has this big event that it informs it um and and obviously world war ii was that thing for for roddenberry's generation um and uh <clears throat> Uh, and, and we've heard in interviews too, Roddenberry also, when he was a kid, he also really enjoyed um, uh, maritime, like naval swashbuckling stories oh, right, like Horatio right. Hornblower. <clears throat> and that also, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, combined with his military service and um, and then those stories uh, kind of inform the aesthetic of Star Trek as a very naval, you know, Starfleet is sort of a naval organization uh, with a, a clear chain of command and a captain who is, you know, master after God uh, on his starship. Uh, the the <laughs> weight of responsibility that Kirk bears yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely, I think, was informed by all those uh, hornblower stories. Um, and certainly Gene's, uh, I mean, Gene must have felt that way as a pilot um on his uh, you know on the b-17s that he flew he flew a lot of combat missions and and i think he survived several crashes um yeah and i think that kind of responsibility definitely uh, had to to stick with him and inform some of those threads in kirk's character yeah now just to be clear that what he was uh they meant there was a crash where he was navigator i guess on a b-17 that we're mm -hmm. thinking about here uh, there were, t I was just checking, he was, there were 10 in a crew, there was a pilot, co-pilot, navigator, which he was assigned as, and mm -hmm. then they had, uh, all the rest were gunners at the different gunner stations around right. the plane, and um, that's why they were called the Flying Fortress, right. and uh, <laughs> they did have one where they overshot a runway coming in, and the pilot and co-pilot were killed, and then Gene and the rest of the crew survived, and he was, mm -hmm. so he was like the highest ranking, they had an inquiry, he was cleared, it was mm -hmm. one of the jungle runways. It wasn't like some pristine, you know, tourist right, place. Right. It was wartime. And um, and then after that, and he had his, and then he was cleared. He was still in service, but he was put back, just his own personal here, just roughly. He was sent back to the States and, and did air training and did accident. He was still in service. It's kind of like sometimes when people have a, you see a lot of this dramatized where pilots would have a traumatic experience and they pull right. them out of the front line just yeah. to make sure they're good. And it was kind of late. It was like 44, so it was kind of late in the war anyway. So, yeah, we've got our document this week is his 
his release, but he did go into the air reserves. And let's remember, this is this this just for fun. It wasn't the Defense Department; it was the War Department since Washington's time, right. all the way up through World War II. So, if War Department looks a little offensive, <laughs> folks, that was the name. It was yep. the War and the Navy, not the Army and the Navy, but the War Department and the Navy. And then the Air Force, they finally settled decades of politics and uh, turf right. war and created independent <laughs> Air Force. But so he was in the Army Air Forces, the Army Air Corps, um, and he was in the reserves after that. But we were talking about how uh, he, like Bob, uh, Matt Jeffries, that designed the Enterprise, mm -hmm. was the mainstay. Started with Pedro Guzman uh, at Desi Liu as art director, but by the second pilot, it was all Matt's baby, and Matt designed the Enterprise out of the gate. But that's that's kind of that whole. It's almost like it's understated because when that whole generation, I forget the proportion, what three fourths were in some kind of uniform during those right. years, and if not that, certainly by Korea, like Gene Kuhn. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, they it's like it's just they don't think about it. They all just you just the whole generation passes through that filter, and nobody sits around and thinks, "Gosh, let's get people on the show that all share a military." I mean. That, right. that wasn't even a thing. Right? <laughs> you throw a rock and hit somebody who exactly. uh, was in the military exactly. or knew, yeah. knew somebody. Some branch. Uh, had a family member. Yeah, and, and I think that was one of the interesting things um, with Matt Jeffries, um, uh, who had a you know he had a career in in naval or excuse me in aviation art, um, and he served in the war also in B-17s, and that's something yep. that they bonded. Uh, he and Gene bonded over when they first met. And Jeffries um, brought a lot of his experience around machines like uh, the B-17s and other planes that he flew into the design of the Enterprise. And he wanted it to feel um, practical in a way that I think was kind of new for science fiction. Um, yeah. The amount of um, aircraft logic, I've heard Michael Kuda call it, um, that he imbued into those sets. Uh, um, really shows a level of, of thought and care into the believability of a show that was, um, I think, rare for science fiction at the time, especially from for the art of science fiction. You know, you had you had a, a movie like uh, Forbidden Planet, which is I think was one of the first science fiction movies to take itself seriously. Um, right. But in terms of how things looked and the, the production design, I think Matt was really a trailblazer. And a lot of that tied into his experience around aircraft. And I think I know when Gene was talking to Matt um, about what he wanted the Enterprise to look like, he didn't he didn't give Matt a direction of it should look like this. He gave him a bunch of points of mm -hmm. it should not look like this, right? It should not look like a Flash Gordon rocket. It should not have fins or flames or strings. You know, he he was very clear that he didn't want it to seem like another serialized sci-fi show for kids. Um, and uh, and so Matt took, uh, I was just reading that he took um, pictures from all those shows and put them on a wall and saying, mm -hmm. we're not doing this. And then he also took photographs of real world aircraft and said, we're not doing this either. <laughs> and then he sort of had that defined an envelope of, of design um, uh, that was informed by his own experience. Yeah. If this is once again, it's a, it's an oldie, but a goodie, but speaking of generations, the first, generation or two of fandom grew up reading the making of star trek and that story gene making repeated trips you know down to the art room at desilu and saying okay matt here's what i don't want and he makes sketches mm -hmm. and then gene goes okay i like a piece of this and they did that several times mm -hmm. you know and and that i love that story and again yeah gene wasn't the artist but he knew what he wanted or what he didn't want right. and, but, but matt 
he led Matt through two or three or four rounds of that. And that's why right. we get all these spin-off designs that, you know, like the ring ship right. and the spherical <laughs> hull, or the primary right. hull is a sphere. They were all cast off ideas along, but they still found their way back into Star Trek, which is interesting. And that's, uh, you know, I, from where you are, and we all know you, you know, in, in either yourself or supervising others, and, and then blending the story details. I mean, it's not just about the ship designs, it's the flavor. And then, you know, we have naval. Somebody said why the Air Force came out of an, of an army tradition with, you know, with ranks mm -hmm. and things. Why is, you know, why are they so naval? And Gene was in the Air Corps. Why is he so naval with the, well, they, they were, it was more like ships as fleets, not. Right. I mean, that whole, that whole dynamic is really interesting too. Yeah. And that's something actually, I mean, I have a, I have a, a lot of friends who are in the, the Navy or Navy veterans. Um, and we talk a lot about how, um, how they're from their perspective, you know, how they, how they kind of view Star Trek and, and, um, and there's a, in the defense community and military science community, there's actually a really big argument about if we did build a, um, an actual space service like Starfleet, space would it be, force? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, so there's the Space Force, which isn't really, you know, people make fun of it. It's not really supposed to be Starfleet. The Space Force is really about uh, cybersecurity and satellite security and, and satellite, you know, uh, managing mm -hmm. Earth satellites. And my understanding is it really, it became its own service because nobody in the Air Force wanted to do that stuff. Um, the prestigious part of the Air Force is really like strategic bombing and, and air superiority. And so all the extra stuff with satellites and um, uh, in cybersecurity, that was just sort of like, well, yeah, whatever. And so the, the it kind of got shunted <laughs> off into a new service for the Space Force. Anyway, oh, oh they have little vision. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's so this is big debate of like, well, would it would it be an outgrowth of the Air Force or would it be an outgrowth of the Navy? Because allegorically, the Navy makes a lot more sense if you're if you're mm -hmm. building these ships that are going to be far away from home and hard to reach. Right. That's a very master call commander. Them ships. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a very master commander for our side of the world um, right. feeling to it. Yeah. Hornblower. So, yeah. When, so, you know, as a fan, as a kid, as a fan, and then in, at work, uh, I, is it, has it transcended even consciously thinking? Do, is it just so part of Star Trek's DNA, the military influence that we, and when I say the military influence, I just mean, the 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 way the technology is viewed and organized mm -hmm. and, and the way the design presents itself and then just the way you know it's a hierarchical structure with clearly defined ranks right, right. and how yeah. that even comes across in the day-to-day -day life that's reflected in the design you know there's a yeah and i think there there are a lot of fans and, and especially from fans from other countries so in the united states you know i'll, I'll cop to the fact that we have a very pro-military culture um you know we're very very conditioned to uh, respect the people in the military, respect the military or as an organization. And, um, and so military for a lot of Americans is a, is a, at the very least it's a positive connotation or, or, or you know, a, a mm -hmm. thing that we appreciate. And obviously all right. not all Americans feel this way. Um, but there are a lot of other places in the world where a military is a, you know, an oppressive force or, um, they've, you know, coup d'etat you know and they're in control right. of the government and and so the, the there's um for for some people it can be very very charged uh, discussion about is starfleet a military or not um what i like about um the military well, allegory oh, go ahead no i just i, I don't want to say i just gonna say mm -hmm. you know star trek and its popularity arose 
in the height of the Vietnam crisis when people's right. perception of the military was at its low and it was a drafty army just doing what they were told. It was the you right. know, bureaucrats and the politicians and at the head. So, and a lot of the, you know, the draft force took the brunt of that unpopularity, but at the same time, Star Trek, I mean, that's kind of a, that's an interesting contradiction that the first wave of Star Trek fandom came about while the view of the, so that was, I don't want to say it was downplayed, but it was, mm -hmm. it was an interesting mix even before, you know, we, we, things evolved to the point they are now kind of repaired yeah. that look. And I think, I think where, where the, where Starfleet as a military kind of holds together and what i what i find interesting about using that as an analogy is you know the military is obviously it's an organization um built that that operates lots of complex pieces of equipment um has lots of uh, policies and procedures to operate those equipment in very specific ways they're designed for uh, i don't want to say the lowest common denominator but you know they have very specific things you're supposed to do in specific orders so that everybody does it the same way and and um, and then there are a lot of interesting in jokes and traditions that militaries have that I think I, I just think all of that if you if you dig into that a little more deeply than maybe Star Trek has you can get some really fascinating world building and interesting texture for your story I mean a, a great recent example is the Enterprise Bingo um, in Strange New Worlds um, mm -hmm. uh, where they're you know they like all the crew when you get assigned to the ship you have to do this this and this just as sort of an initiation right you know and that's stuff that happens that's you know maybe not in that specific way but um uh you know there there are pejorative nicknames for the ship you know the the aircraft carrier uss enterprise um cvn 65 um towards the end of its service life um its nickname was uh building building 65 i think because it was just constantly being refit and stationary and in either Norfolk or San Diego, I think it was Norfolk. But anyway, um, but there's just a lot of stuff like that that you can build into the world, inspired by these real traditions and um, and you know idiosyncrasies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just to close out here. Did you can you think here just recently the last big wave of of ship <laughs> ship designing? Uh, anything <laughs> like especially like a military turn came to mind, or you had a debate or a discussion with people and and some con you know some uh, original influence in Star Trek maybe through this thread that Gene mm -hmm. and, and Matt shared uh, came came up again that's I mean that's interesting I mean a lot of I mean a lot of the challenge when you're doing a, a game like Star Trek online is essentially a retail game where you're selling new ships all the time right is you want each thing that you make to have a purpose and to fit fill a niche right every every piece of hardware built for the military or for a civilian airline or, or nasa it's built for a specific reason and you know after doing 50 60 70 100 ships it's like well this is the defiant but slightly different right like that's you have to to find um find a a, a niche for all that stuff that feels believable in the world and so you kind of look at okay how does what is the requisition process in the military when they're starting a new ship design or new plane and uh, how does that work and how can i kind of retrofit that onto uh the the world building that i'm doing for for this new ship yeah well and that's that's great because once again there's why we love uh sto star trek online <laughs> and that's why we've loved star trek one of the threads of uh, fandom for star trek has been that devotion to logic as we all know but Gosh, this is, um, you know, it's just such a little dip into the water of this topic, but uh, I, I, thanks so much 
Thomas, for coming yeah. by and uh, thanks for having me. Bring it up. We'll have to have you back sometime, Mister. You, you're going places, I think. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> open. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody! The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at Facebook.com/slash The Trek Files. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Uh, yeah, that's me at LarryNemechek.com. That's where you can also link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.